Okay. All right, if you can hear my voice, I'd love it if you could grab a seat and also grab a Bible um, and open the Bible up to Luke chapter 23. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles on the back table over there, and we'd love for you to snag one of those and just have it open in front of you as we're walking through this time together. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you as our gift to you, or just as you walk out, grab it and take it home. We want everyone to have a copy of of the Bible. Let's pray together as we open to Luke 23 and enter into this time together. Father, we worship you tonight, and we are just in awe of your faithfulness and how we walk through so many different moments and seasons, and it's hard to even quantify which ones um, we'll remember and which ones um, stick with us and shape us. And uh, so it's just incredible to, to take a night like tonight and just think back the last 15 years and simple questions that were asked or things that were said or done that we just remember. And it causes us to remember how faithful you are. And so tonight, too, Lord, as we transition to just looking at your word, I pray that we would see your faithfulness in the cross of Jesus and that you would center us once again in our hope in him. And uh, I pray, Lord, that we would remember that no one can steal that hope from us. We pray you'd speak to us tonight, Lord. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit, um, that the words of my mouth would just be a vessel for your use in our church and beyond these walls. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, I know on a birthday, um, you're supposed to have like a cheery thing to talk about, and so I don't mean to sound tone deaf, Um, But as we look at our passage tonight, our topic is death. So, um, and the reason for that is because that's where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. That's that's really the issue at stake here as we open up God's Word to Luke chapter 23. And the topic of death, I mean, let's just be honest, it's a hard and weighty and soul-searching topic, isn't it? It's sort of the elephant in the room at all times. It's something that we know is very real. Uh, It's something that we know that we'll all experience, yet it's the thing that none of us want to talk about. That's why it's a lot more fun to flock to an Easter service where we celebrate victory over death and resurrection than it is to flock to a Good Friday service, you know. Uh, Death comes regularly in our lives, but it's also one of those things that you don't think about until someone actually passes away. Right? Or you look around the world and you see horrible things happening and people suffering and you see what's happening in Ukraine or a relative passes away or you get sick and then all of a sudden we kind of sober up to that reality once again. And so the question in life is never, are we going to die? That's never the question. But the question is, how are we going to die? How are we going to die? And once you can answer that question, you'll know how you can start living right now. It actually shapes how you're supposed to live right now. Now, to be really clear, we're not talking about death with these broad brush strokes as if it's just a generic topic. No, the gospel writer Luke gets out his his finer paintbrushes, and he's painting for us his narrative account of the death of Jesus himself. And this is the thing that Jesus has been waiting for. This is the thing his whole life has been moving for. This is the very moment that he entered the world to experience. 
right? We've seen this over and over again. It would almost be weird if you had a friend or a relative talk in the way that Jesus did. If you had a friend or somebody you knew that was consistently, even at their young age of 30, talking about, hey guys, when I die, and hey, when I die, and when I die, and hey, don't forget I'm going to die, we'd be like, hey, calm down, you're 30, you know? But Jesus has talked about it all the time, all the time, because it's what his life was headed towards. There should be an image for you on the screen. There's a very famous painting painted in 1873 called The Shadow of Death. And I put it up there for you just as an image as we enter Holy Week. This is painted by William Holman Hunt. And it's a compelling image in my mind because it shows for us how the cross was always before Jesus. He knew this is the moment that his life has been moving towards. Right, you see him, arms raised, staring into the sun, which casts a shadow against the wall behind him. You see a wooden plank on the wall with some tools. You see him, imagine him in a carpenter shop before he even begins his earthly ministry. And then you see his mother Mary there on her knees. Her back turns to, to you, from you, right? The viewer, you can't see her. She's staring at this shadow of the cross, considering maybe the horror, the wonder of it all. And then look at her waist. What is she next to? This chest that the painter has painted in, those gifts that the Magi brought as they came and worshipped the king, as they followed the star upon his birth. Right, This is the thing that Jesus has been waiting for and his life has been moving towards even from moments like this in his life. And so tonight, we've finally arrived. We've finally arrived. And let me tell you, I know it's a sobering topic, but in the death of Jesus, there is peace and there is rest and there is life in the important words that we see. I just want to get swept up, hopefully, in this narrative together. And so we're just going to work through the four clear movements of our passage. We're going to see the cross is carried. We're going to see the king is praying. We're going to see the savior is saving. And we're going to see finally that the son is trusting. Let's look here and read together. We'll read, we'll stop, we'll consider it together, and we'll move on. But the cross is carried. Look with me in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? We look up in verse 26, we notice that a cross is being carried. But interestingly, it was customary for a condemned criminal to carry their own cross up to the place of their execution. And in John chapter 19, we learn that Jesus at least began the journey carrying his cross, because that's what John tells us. But here... We are told there's a guy named Simon. He's from a place called Cyrene. He's coming in from the country and the soldiers just grab him and say, carry the cross. I mean, just think about that. You're coming into Jerusalem. Someone grabs you and says, carry this guy's cross. So Simon picks it up and, and carries this cross. Now, we are meant then to draw from that that Jesus 
had endured so many beatings and whippings up until that moment that he was so weak that he could not even carry his own cross. Right? Then in verse 27, as this cross is being carried for this king, verse 27, we see Luke describe them as a great multitude of people, a great crowd of people. And he wants to highlight the women who are following them in this crowd. And what are they doing? In a very physical and obvious way, they are weeping, they are lamenting, they are mourning, they are expressing their grief over what they're seeing. It's actually important to see this because last week as Mike, as Mike preached for us, we saw a great crowd of people rise up and say, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. But here we see a great multitude of people who don't have that perspective on Jesus. There are still people in Jerusalem who admire him. But what does Jesus say? It's really um, jarring. He, he sees this crowd of people who are sad over what's happening to him. In verse 28, it says he turns to them and says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. I mean, this, this would have been very, very jarring. And then from verse 29 down to verse 31, he begins to talk about they should weep for themselves because there is a greater disaster that actually is coming. One that's so bad that women who are barren and who are unable to have children will say, I am blessed that I don't have any. Now, don't miss how jarring that statement is. Jesus basically grabs for the, the person in society that no one would want to have that experience because especially for a woman who was lower in ancient Near East society, their value was wrapped up into their ability to bear children. So to be barren was to be seen as someone who didn't have God's favor upon them, who was cursed in a way. So he says, it's better to be a barren woman in that day because they would say, I am so glad I'm barren. I am blessed. Right? That would just be completely jarring to them. And so he continues on and he gives us this botany image. Right? If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry, and you don't need to know anything about botany to know that if the wood is green, so to speak, it means it has life in it. But if it's dry, it's completely cut off from all sorts of life, and it is now able to just be burned. It's the only value that it has. Basically, Jesus is saying this. If the innocent one, Jesus, suffers like this, what will be the fate of the guilty who reject God's salvation when it finally arrives? What will that be like? So he's talking about this horrible thing that's going to happen, this judgment that's going to come, because what he's doing, if you look down in verse 30, Jesus is actually quoting the prophet Hosea. In Hosea, he's quoting from a line that Hosea uses that says, they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. The gospel writer John, when he writes the book of Revelation, he, point, he takes this idea and puts it together with something in Isaiah chapter 2, and he writes this. It's worth reading in uh, Revelation chapter 6. It should be on the screen for you. He says, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves, and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. So Jesus is having his cross carried. He's going to his death. People are following him and crying. And he has the audacity and even the strength somehow in his weakness to turn to people and warn them about this greater disaster that could be coming, that is coming. Excuse me. What's he doing? Why is he bringing this up? What's going on? 
Well, as usual, Jesus is surprising us. Again, what does he say? Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Is he saying you shouldn't weep ever? You should never cry over what Jesus has done for you? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you don't understand what's going on. Here I am, and you're weeping for me because you see me as a dead man walking. You see me as a man condemned to die, a man who is sentenced to death. Right? You see me going to my death, and you don't understand that you too are in the same boat. You don't understand that you too, as it were, are dead men walking. You don't understand that judgment actually hangs over you. You don't understand someday everyone will stand before the face of the throne of God, and if you're not ready for that day, you will wish that the mountains and the hills could fall on you instead of having to endure the righteous judgment of God for you over your sin against him. What are we doing here? This is Jesus talking about Judgment Day, looking at these people and saying, until you weep for yourselves, you shouldn't weep for me. Until you understand what's wrong with you, you won't understand that you are in danger, that you're under the same sentence. You don't understand what I'm doing. Until you weep for yourselves, don't weep for me. Why does Luke include this? I kind of asked that question all week because if I'm really honest with you, this is the passage in our story or in our text that I wanted to like rush past. I was like, yeah, let's get to the other parts. You know, so you're kind of like, well, why does Luke include this? Well, for a lot of really important reasons. And I'd say, first of all, it's important for us. I mean, here we are living in the Pacific Northwest. And we're talking about judgment day and wrath and mountains falling on people. And some of you are going to say, aren't we really beyond this sort of thing? I mean, haven't we all come to the understanding that we just believe that God is a God of love today? Right? Who wants to believe in something like this? Well, here's what I would say to you from that idea. First, you have to realize that if you're going to believe anything that Jesus tells you, right, you have to believe in Judgment Day. If you don't believe in Judgment Day, you might as well throw everything else out because Jesus talks about judgment more than anybody else. If you, in eternal justice, especially more than any other writers and speakers in the Bible put together, basically. But it's also more important, I think, to see that Jesus is not talking to Pharisees here. He's talking to women. He's talking to women who love him and care for him. And he cares for them. And he loves them. And so he says to them, you're in danger. Right? You're under the same sentence. So if he says that to them, then what about us? I mean, here's the thing. When he says, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves, he's saying, until you weep, for yourselves and see yourselves as lost sinners apart from Christ. You're under the same sentence and you do not understand what I'm doing. You do not understand why I'm walking this road. You see this as a tragedy, right? But you don't understand my death is not about me, it's about you, right? So the cross is being carried. And the second thing we see here is that the king is praying Verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, and the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Luke tells us simply that Jesus was crucified, very plainly in verse 33. This is the form of of, of Roman um, capital punishment, I guess you could say, where someone was fastened to a wooden beam while their arms outstretched with nails piercing through their hands, right? And then they would be held up by their having their feet pierced as well. It'd be very difficult to breathe. It'd be very agonizing. I cannot fathom it. And I think we can grow too familiar with the story to miss how horrific this kind of sight would be. It would be more than that even humiliating for Jesus. Because you see down in verse 34, what are the people doing? The soldiers. They're casting lots for his clothing. It means he's not wearing any. Right? Crucifixion was a slow and painful death. And here Luke tells us that there are two others being crucified with Jesus, and Jesus is in the center of them. Right? Luke tells us the other two were criminals. Other gospel writers tell us they're thieves. And they're brought to a place called the Skull. Now, if you go to a place called the Skull, I imagine it's not a very nice place. Okay? The, in Latin, the word is Calvaria, which is why people call the place Jesus died Calvary. That's confusing to you. So there's Jesus hanging on a cross. Can you see him? In between two criminals dying. Verse 35, the crowd is watching, you're told. And look, there's rulers, so not the people, but rulers who mock Jesus. They ridicule him to one another. Let him save himself. What kind of savior can't save himself? They wonder, they laugh, and look at the titles they use, the Christ of God, the chosen one. They know very well what's at stake here. Right, that Jesus is the so-called Messiah, the one that everyone's been waiting for, that was going to usher in God's kingdom, his eternal kingdom forever, and they're not buying it. Why? Well, because in their mind, if this was God's man, if divine favor was upon him, then he wouldn't be in this situation. He wouldn't be someone deserving of hanging on a cross and, and with the symbol of being cursed. The soldiers now get into the mocking, not just the rulers, like all mocking kind of does, right? Some people start, other people join in. The soldiers join in. And they too call on Jesus to save himself if he is the king of the Jews, right? That's what they're saying. If you are the savior, if you are the king, save yourself. Isn't this exactly what Satan did in the wilderness with Jesus when he tempted Jesus at the beginning of the gospel of Luke? He takes him out into the wilderness and he says, if you are the son, then turn these stones into bread. If you really are the son, then throw yourself down from the temple and the angels will save you. Right? It's a mocking. It's a, it's a questioning of Jesus. They mock, save yourself. And he could have. He could have called on a legion of angels. But if Jesus saved himself, he couldn't save you. Someone will bear God's rightful wrath against our sin. It will either be Jesus or it'll be us. Mocking, watching, ridiculing, dying, 
identified with criminals. And what words come out of Jesus' mouth in this moment? Let me just think about it for a second. Physical pain, you're in horrible pain. When you're in horrible pain, you're not a chatterbox, right? right? If you say anything, it's very selective, we could say. Right? That's not how we normally would, would talk. We wouldn't, so everything that we would say would, would really matter, wouldn't it? I mean, even if you have a friend, someone in your family who never talks, when they finally speak up, what do you do? You listen more attentively, right? You're like, oh, so-and-so speaking. In our family around the dinner table, it's always our third-born Gus. He's the quietest, and so everyone else is always loud and talking. And then once in a while, he builds up the courage to kind of speak at a higher volume, which is high for him, and he'll finally say something. And me and Elizabeth are like, you know, we're like, hey, be quiet. Gus, what do you have to say, right? He doesn't have anything to say that's that inspiring, if I'm being really honest with you. But not like Jesus, okay? But you listen, don't you? When you don't expect somebody to talk, and they talk, you listen. Jesus is hanging on a cross. There's only seven things he ever said from the cross that we were told about. Luke records three of them in our passage. We should pay attention to them. So think about it. When Jesus gets squeezed, what comes out of him? When he's under the most immense pressure and stress or whatever you'd say in his life, what comes out of him? Jesus himself said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does he say? Father, forgive them. Who? Them. The mockers. How do we know it's the mockers? Because he says they don't know what they're doing. J.C. Ryle says it is worth noting that as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. Here's the great high priest, not offering a lamb, but himself as the lamb, saying, Father, forgive. And he's praying for who his enemies. Speaking of their ignorance, his point is that they haven't comprehended what they're doing. And look at Jesus. We saw him earlier in Luke's gospel. You see him on the Sermon on the Mount teaching us the ethical standards of what it looks like to follow him in this world. And he says what? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And here you have him doing the very thing he told us to do. And I do, I do, I've told you this before, I love all things British, and um, so I've enjoyed at times watching The Crown about the royal family, and I love this line that Queen Elizabeth says in that. She says, a man doesn't know what he is until he's threatened or given power. A man doesn't know what he is until he's threatened or given power. That's true for all of us. If you want to say it's true of Jesus, he's always had the power. He could call on the angels right now. You want to say he's threatened? He's being pierced. He's dying. Who is he? He's a Savior, right? That's what we see the Savior saving, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. What a line, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So one of the thieves joins in with the rulers and the soldiers and basically says the same thing. Save yourself. I mean, just think about how much sense this makes. It's perfect sense, actually. It's very logical. I mean, they're saying, save yourself. You're the king. Look in verse 38. They even have an inscription above his head, the king of the Jews. They're saying, you're the king. You're in the capital city of the Jews, right? This is your hour. If you're not going to exercise your power, then when are you going to do it? Hey, if not now, when? This is your moment, Jesus. If you're the king, come down. And when you come down, could you help us out too? But he doesn't answer him. He rails on him. He doesn't even answer him. He doesn't get it. The rulers don't get it. The soldiers don't get it either. They don't understand that a, they don't understand a savior who comes in weakness. They don't get it. They don't see it because they're like the daughters of Jerusalem in a sense. And, and that is that they don't see that they're sentenced. They don't see any need for anyone to die for them. They need a Savior who's maybe just an example, or they need a Savior who's a helper to them, maybe to add to the things that they can't complete. They want a Savior who's a general, right, who's going to fire up the armies and get things done. They don't think they need someone to die for them. It's the thief who's the most interesting one, though, because he says, if you're the Christ... Meaning, if you're the messianic king that the Jews have been waiting for, here's how I'll know. Right? Save yourself and us. Here's what I would suggest to you. Virtually all of us, everybody in this room, we have, we've prayed prayers like this before in our lives. Right? Whether you consider yourself a Christian or you don't consider yourself a Christian, you've prayed this prayer, I'm guessing, in some ways, haven't you? Right, regardless of what your religious background is, something goes wrong in your life and you say something to the effect of, if there is a God, here's how I'll know. Right? Get me out of this situation. Just like the thief, we've all prayed this prayer. You're there in a, in a moment of desperation. Maybe someone you love is, is dying or you are in that moment yourself and you pray whether you're religious or not, and you say, if there's a God, God, if you are there, if you can hear me, save me. Save this person. Get me out of this. And there are some of us who are skeptics today who are maybe even deconstructed in our faith because we've prayed prayers that Jesus didn't answer because we prayed prayers like that. He never answers that prayer. I mean, do you notice in verse 39 where the criminal speaks to Jesus, what does he say? Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. But Jesus doesn't say anything. He, do, he doesn't. He, he, he doesn't see the only hope that he has of actually being saved is if Jesus doesn't get down from the cross. But then verse 40 and 43, although Jesus doesn't respond to that first thief, the other one does. And he rebukes that criminal. Why? Why does the text say that he rebukes him? Because he sees how innocent Jesus is. And do you notice how he sees himself? He says, and we indeed justly are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He calls his cross the reward 
of his deeds. He's going, I deserve this. You deserve this. He doesn't. After rebuking, then he turns to Jesus, and what does he say to Jesus? He says, remember me. He says, remember me. Literally, he says, remember me for good. That's what the word means. Not just a one-off, remember me, Jesus, but remember me for good. Don't stop remembering me. When you enter your kingdom. He knows he's the true king, and Jesus gives this great promise to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. Man, think about that. If you are suffering and dying, and you know that you deserve death because of your sin, and the Savior looks at you while he's dying and says those words, I mean, I've thought about that a lot this week. Can there be anything sweeter than that? I can't imagine the physical agony that you're in, yet simultaneously the flood of peace that would come over you. Just the horrible situation and the shameful situation that you're in, just the guilt that's piled onto you, yet the joy that's somehow rising up from inside of you. I mean, up until that exact moment on the cross, this guy had no hope. When you ask the question, how are you going to die? He's just like, like this. No hope. Then Jesus looks at him in the face and says, you will be with me today in paradise. I imagine he died very differently after that moment. Very differently. From those words on, he now had hope, but it was a hope that no one could steal from him, not even death itself. He was going to be in paradise with Jesus. See, for those who reject Jesus, and I do not I do not say this happily in any way, shape, or form, but for those who reject Jesus, if that's you, and you want a different kind of Savior, death is the doorway to hell. It's a doorway to where you're completely separated from the presence of God. But death, for the saved, is the doorway to paradise. Let's just be honest, guys. Grace is not fair, is it? Because there might be some of you in this room who see this guy and the guilt upon his life that warrants him dying on a cross. And at the very end of his life, Jesus looks at him and says, you too, you'll be with me in heaven. We're like, wait a minute, what have I been doing my whole life? Why have I been breaking my back? Or why have I been doing all these good deeds for Jesus? And we're all saved by, upon the same basis? But grace is not fair, and so if you're after fairness in your life, you close yourself off to the gospel. You close yourself off from it. So what will be your only hope when you breathe your last? I propose to you that whatever you cling to then is what you need to cling to today, like right now. How will you die? And there's some of you who might say, I don't think Jesus would ever say that to me. If I was hanging on the cross, I don't think he'd ever say that to me. But you need to know that everything necessary for that person's salvation is everything necessary for yours. It's not a different grading scale. If Jesus will remember him and never forget him, don't you think he'll remember you? All it takes is trusting that Jesus is the king who dies for you. 
And that's the same kind of trust we see in him. That's the final thing Luke ends us with. The son we see is trusting, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So it's noon, and darkness is over the whole land. Why? Not because it's the Pacific Northwest, right? But it's because the light of the world has died. How does Jesus respond to death in his final moment? How does Jesus die? He digs down into the core of who he is. He's the son. So what does he say? Father. Father. Into your hands. I commit my spirit. He refers to his father's hands as the place that he's going, that he's resting, that he's trusting in. See, the Bible has a lot of things to say about the hands of God, interestingly enough. Right? Hands are meant to communicate control. They're meant to communicate security and power and rest. That's where he's giving up his spirit to. And this is a huge contrast to the hands that he's been in for the last 12 hours. Jesus said many different times, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. He's also said the hour is coming when I will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He also said, I will be led as a lamb to the slaughter into the hands of sinners. Peter preached in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2 that with wicked hands they crucified Jesus. But now it's all over. Man has done his worst and Jesus has endured the cross. He didn't get off. So this statement alone shows us that yes, he was given into the hands of men, but more truly all along the way, he was in the hands of his father. That's how he lived. That's how he died. We read this psalm to begin our call to worship, um, our service tonight, but Psalm 31, this is exactly what he's quoting. What does he say? You are my rock. You are my fortress for your name's sake. You lead me. You guide me. You take me out of the net that they have hidden from me. You are my refuge. That's, I'm trusting myself into your hands every moment of my life, right? That's, that's everyday life kind of stuff. And then he says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Guys, this is a song that the Hebrew people sang as a way of remembering that God is their place of refuge, that he's a fortress in all situations. He's the one who hears their cries and redeems them and saves them. He's declared as the rock that they can firmly stand on. He is declared as leading his people and guiding them. It's a psalm of trust. You see, Jesus trusted his father in the totality of his life. He committed his spirit into the father's hands every moment. And because of that, in his death, he does the same. And so here's the takeaway, right? Jesus committed his spirit into the Father's hands. 
so that you could do the same thing tonight. The very same thing. Because think about it, if he didn't do this for you, then our lives in God's hands is not a great thing. You would not want to commit your life into God's hands. All right, let's be real. If Jesus never endured the cross for us, then yeah, on that last day, our spirit in God's hands is not a refuge-like thing. It is a terrifying thing. But because Jesus died, as he commits his spirit into his Father's hands, these words are words of rest for us. We can trust our Father in everything. This is how we're to live. In the same way that we would die. I think a great image of this, I was reminded this week again of my son Gus. It's Gus Day. But when he was younger, um, he was, I had to keep, he was on my, I had to be on my toes because he would just climb up on a coffee table or a real table or something higher than that even at times. And I wouldn't even be paying attention. He'd be like, Dad, catch. And he would just jump and I'd be like, whoa. And I'd have to like catch him. So it was kind of stressful at times, and I had to always be like, hey, buddy, you got to make sure I'm looking at you and whatever. I have a perfect record, though. I never dropped him, right? These, these hands are technically perfect hands when it comes to catching my son, okay? But in a real sense, I'm like, man, what an image, right? He just had so much trust in me. He shouldn't have, but he did, right? If I just jump and say my dad's name, he'll catch me. He had that kind of trust. It's the same thing with us and God, isn't it? If you, like Jesus and the psalmist, trust your spirit into the Father's hands in death, then you can commit your spirit into his fortress-like, refuge-like hands now. And then when it comes to the point where you die, you just keep doing the same thing. This is why I ask, not are you going to die, but how? And once you know that, you can start living. See, once Jesus was in the hands of sinful men, willingly, but one day all of us will be in God's hands. Do you see that? Do you believe that? See, the real question in this final statement that Jesus poses for us is whose hands are you in? Are you in your own? Are you in someone else's? Something else's? Or are you in God's as a father? You might feel safe in others' hands for a while. But those hands are shaky hands. Your life is like water in them. But if your life is in God's hands, His hands are like the ocean floor. It's not going anywhere. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. His hands are redeeming hands. So God the Father... His hand gave us Jesus so that our lives could rest in his tonight. Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross so that ours would never have to be. He died so that you could live. He stopped breathing so that you could actually start breathing tonight. He gave up his life so that you could start living the one that you were meant to live. He endured wrath so that you could receive God's enduring love. He endured justice so that you could have mercy. He chose death so that you could receive life. He endured abandonment so that you could receive acceptance. 
He endured rejection so that you could receive approval. He endured judgment so that you could receive grace. He endured loss so that you could receive gain. He became poor so that you could become spiritually rich. He was ousted from the family of the Jews so that you could be brought into God's family. He set aside his worth so that you could ultimately find your worth in him. He set aside his glory so that you could experience and live for God's glory. He committed his spirit into his father's hands, even in death, so that you could too tonight. He gave his life. It was not taken from him. He didn't save himself so that he could save you. Don't weep for him until you've weeped for yourself. So tonight we can respond to the cross. Right? In the same way that these people responded. Verse 47, the centurion saw what had taken place. He praised God. Certainly this man was innocent. You can do that too. We can also repent. The crowds, 48, right, that all had assembled when they saw what had taken place, returned home and beating their breasts. What have we done? Where is your spirit resting tonight? Is it in safe hands? There is freedom in these words. There is peace in these words. There are burdens lifted in these words. Because Jesus spoke these words and breathed his last, the curtain has been torn. And we can rest in the arms of everlasting love. Let's pray. God, we sit here in awe of you tonight in light of what you've done for us. Knowing that the reward of our life should be death. We thank you for your grace and we thank you for these words from Jesus to warn us to forgive us, to promise us paradise, to show us the way to die. So God, I pray tonight as we respond to you through taking communion, through reflection, through singing, as we enter into a holy week, passion week, remember your life from Palm Sunday to Easter. Help us not skip over Good Friday and miss the wonder of the cross. I pray that it would fall on us with fresh ears this week, Lord. We'd have fresh ears and fresh eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.